Good evening, Cosmo. Good evening, Nooch. <laughs> Make me laugh every time. I can't stop. Oh, it's so funny. Every it, time. It's so funny. So what's happening? Um, so we're officially on lockdown. Montana it feels like it's one of the last states to actually do that, but uh, the governor has issued the order. So we ran out and got some groceries yesterday, and we're good for a couple more weeks. So we're just going to hunker down and work on some projects around the house and watch movies, get fat. And, and of course, Montana lockdown is stay at least two miles away from any other person, right? Yeah, we got a good half mile from anyone that we know. Uh, <laughs> so we're, we're okay. Do you have like, a How urban, you? do you have any urban centers in Montana? Like, is there like a, in the, what's, what's the big town in Montana? Butte? No, that's Idaho. Uh, Montana. Montana. Okay. Uh, there are like five cities of some size, like Butte, Billings, Helena, Missoula. Uh, I want to say there's one more, but not us. Like Big Fork, which is near us, a couple thousand people. The big town near us is Kalispell, and they've got about 20,000 people. Uh, I, compared to Longmont, where I used to live, where they're at 100,000 people just there, and then it's part of the Denver metro area of like two and a half million people. So it's right. very different. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I got one more week to go, so I'm here with uh, yeah. yeah. But Justin is out of quarantine. Those never had any symptoms. So that's good. Good. Yeah. Oh. So you're staying another week because of the other two boys? Yeah. So. Friday, Justin came home on Friday the 13th, and I'd already been, I had stayed home to work that entire week. Um, so on Friday, I came to my mother-in-law's house, and then Matthew went to his friend's house, and Jeffrey went to his buddy's apartment. So they had both been around other people, and whoever those people had been around, you know, it's just, it's kind of the spider web, or I don't know mm -hmm. what you call it. Mm -hmm. And then they both came home on this last Monday and Tuesday. And I kind of figured this to be 100% safe, maybe not 100%, but as safe as possible. I should probably just wait another week. It's, you know, it's not, it's not killing me. I'm okay. And, and you know. Sure. Yeah. Jennifer's probably enjoying it a lot. <sighs> I doubt it. It's probably nice <laughs> to have the family together. I saw this Maybe. meme of like a, and like an elk or an antelope or something doing doing you know what they do when they kind of bounce mm -hmm. across a and it said me going to annoy my wife <laughs> <sighs> it's probably me anyway so i thought we would talk about your uh our different significantly different professional histories maybe just okay. go like chronologically from the time we graduated college and go forward till uh, we get to today sure you go first. I always feel like I go first. Do you go first? I, I, I feel like I don't want to eclipse your story. All right. Well, my story is pretty amazing. So I, I graduated from Truman State in 94. At the time, it was Northeast Missouri State, but I don't really care. People get really wound up about that sometimes. And I had a BA in theater. I graduated in, in May, so I graduated on time four years. And I had spent my senior year uh, as an intern at Campus Christian Fellowship, which was the, the largest Christian organization on campus. And we had uh, 
as an intern, well, first part of that, I guess, I guess it's part of my professional history. I raised money from supporters and donors at my church at home. And I don't remember where all I got it, but um, I was paid $400 a month for my internship. And that came from donations from people from my home church and, and uh, other, other Christians, I guess I knew that I had solicited funds from. So, and I spent that year, we started a, well, just to get the size of it. So Campus Christian Fellowship was about, we were having Wednesday night meetings and we started Sunday morning um, church services for the, on campus that year. And we were hosting three to 400 people at each of those services. Students. Wow. Yeah. And we started a drama group. There were uh, four of us that started that. And we were doing sketches on a, I feel like it was every other week basis on Wednesday nights. And I led the music for the first semester. So I was the actual music worship leader, which I would not say is my forte, but I can certainly get in front of a crowd and basically carry a tune um, enough to get people singing. And I, uh, I need to stop saying, oh, it's going to not sound good on the audio. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Boy, habit, man. I led music, I led a Bible study, and I had some counseling sessions, which I don't know how, how good that was. I, I had a counseling session with someone that had some real, real serious emotional and sexual abuse in their history, and uh, I don't know that I should have been mm. that person. But from what that person told me, it really helped them, really helped them a lot, just that they're talking with somebody that could be trusted and not somebody who's going to take advantage of them. So, Yeah. Um, from there, so I graduated and I got a job as a 20 hour a week youth minister because my plans were to go into the ministry. And I was a youth minister at Green Trails United Methodist. So I got that job because I went to school with both children of the pastor. So it was, oh boy, Bruce and. Jill and Jill was married to Alex and Alex was the guy that I probably knew the best and him and his wife Jill he was maybe a year ahead of me in college and they were like you know you want to be a a youth minister and our church my dad's church is hiring and I was like yeah sure and I I ended up getting that job and I was also going to I, I got accepted at Covenant Seminary at the same time so just to break that down I was a I was raised in a non-denominational Christian fundamentalist evangelical background. And I still pretty much clung to that Uh, campus Christian fellowship that I was involved with was basically that, but it was also a denomination of the Christian church. I was working at a United Methodist church, which United Methodists are traditionally pretty progressive, very liturgical, but very progressive at the same time and very open to you. You didn't really have to believe the dogma of the church to be a member. Right, always. I was always raised with you have to believe the Bible was the inerrant word of God and uh, accept Jesus as your Savior and then confess all those things in front of the entire congregation before you could be a member of the church. Um, United Methodist Church was not that. And then I was going to a fundamentalist, reformed Presbyterian seminary that was teaching all the things I grew up with, except that they believed in infant baptism, which I didn't. So I was pretty eclectic. I was pretty eclectic. I whatever. So, um, but I worked there for two years. Um, 
I've, I've, I mean, it's, it was a really great experience. I loved, I loved the kids. I loved working with the kids and really enjoyed all of the adults or volunteers. Um, I, I, it was an amazing experience. It was a, it was a great, a great thing for me to do. And, but there were, there were times when I was kind of aimless that, you know, I, I really wanted to do it, but when I look back on it, I think it, it wasn't, it wasn't quite the right fit for me, even though I, I really enjoy the people and I, the people's what I really focus on. And it gave me a lot of opportunity for that. And I was able to influence a lot of lives. And in fact, I, uh, one of the kids from my youth group is the associate pastor at a really large church here in, in St. Louis. And when I ran, I went to that church just to visit on an off just one time, like two, two or three years ago, and he was preaching and it like gave me this massive emotional response. And I was, I was overwhelmed that he was, up there and then he came up and he found me because he thought he'd see me because I kind of stick out in the crowd if you can find me. <laughs> All right. So anyway, so he found me and he's like, and it just, it just, it was overwhelming and it was really amazing to see that. And he, he said, I'm here because of you. And I'm like, man, that's great. Except, you know, now I'm not Christian and that's a whole different discussion. But so I, I talked to him about that and I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable. But anyway, so Loved the whole, I love the whole experience, a whole bunch of people I met out of it. And um, there's one story at the very beginning, and I'll tell that, and then I'll turn it over to you for your first job. Um, and I'm not going to use any names here. The, the, the parent leader of the youth group, or the, the volunteer leader, was, well, I don't know if I should tell this story. Um, not using names, right? Worldwide audience that's going to see it. Uh, you never know. So I guess it, no names. So the the youth group leader, he was uh, he was his daughter was in middle school, and he was kind of the leading the whole youth group. Like they had parent volunteers, one that would like was kind of the manager of the whole youth program. Then they had a parent for the middle middle schoolers and a parent for the high school, you know, or parents, whatever. So he was the volunteer in charge of the whole thing, and it helped hire me and everything. So the very first thing I did, I showed up for work my first day and jumped on a bus with a bunch of high schoolers to go to a weekend retreat. And I noticed on the bus that this person was in the front seat of the bus with um, one of the students, girls who was a senior in high school with her legs kind of draped across his lap and his hands on her legs. And they sat like that the whole trip. And I was, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a 22 year old kid, you know, Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and looking around me like, "What?" You know. So I asked one of the parents, I'm "Like, what's going on up there?" And they're like, "Oh, that's a long story. We'll tell you later." Okay. Um. So we go through the whole retreat. We come back, and it turns out like they were meeting each other up before. Um. And this is like a 40, 40 to forty-five-year-old guy. Oh wow. Yeah. So they were meeting up with each other like in the mornings, early in the morning, before anybody else got up and taking walks and. Uh turned out that he had like taken her out of school several times, like brought balloons to her for her birthday and, and taken her out of school for a day and like bad things, you know? <laughs> and, and I guess they had, somebody had talked to him about it previously, but he had not changed his habits with it. And again, I'm 22. I'm, I'm a pretty naive. My, my, my tendency is toward naivete. Um, but still, it, that seems sort of obvious. It, it was obvious and odd. So what, what ended up happening was the, um, the pastor at the time, 
got one got their leader the deacons they didn't call them deacons but you know the 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 number one leader in the church and somebody was also a really highly uh highly placed member in professional society in st louis at the time and later being went on to do really big things um and the three of us called this this guy in for a meeting and said hey you know you have to stop and, I, and i'm really kind of on the sidelines because you know, you're walking in a situation, I'm brand new, never dealt with it before. They're like, we'll deal with it. You just be there. And so they questioned him on it. He got very defensive and very angry and, and basically quit the program and the church over that meeting. And then I don't know if school was out. I think school got out shortly after then, or maybe school had been out. I'm not, I don't remember exactly, but a very short period of time later, the two of them moved in together and he just he walked out on his family and and that was my introduction to the ministry. Wow. Yeah, into this crazy scenario. Um, and I don't, I don't know anything about where they are today. It's, it's entirely possible that they're happy people living their lives. I, I don't know. But um, yeah, that, but at the end of the day, I, I, I never th- felt like the politics of any situation or anything else was overwhelming. I just, uh, I'll tell you why I ended up moving on later, but that was that was two years. My first two years out of college, I was a part-time youth minister making somewhere between 11 and, no, I started 8,800 and got a raise to 11,000 uh, a year. A year, yeah. And was going to seminary at the same time. Huh. Yep. I, uh, wow. So I don't have anything quite so uh, steamy or sorted. Um, so in college, so I, I went to University of Missouri Rolla or UMR, which is now called Missouri S&T. And I do have a big problem with that. I am one of those people. And Betch will back me up. I went to UMR. I did not go to MST. But they want to be more like MIT. Anywho. So Everybody's I, a snob about something. Yep. That's my snobbiness right there. All right. And so... Um, and so I majored, I started out majoring in nuclear engineering and then I went to aerospace engineering and then I went to electrical engineering and finally I'm like, all right, engineering, I need to just do physics, which is pure math or, or pure science. And then I added math. So I ended up graduating after five years with degrees in applied mathematics and astrophysics and a minor in computer science and uh, wondered exactly what kind of job that was going to be. Um, not sure what kind of career I envisioned for myself, but I liked physics and math and I did a little bit of dabbling in computers. And so I went to the job fair. Uh, I didn't even start looking for a job until after spring break, but eventually went to the job fair a month before graduation, no prospects. Right. And there were only two companies. They all, they all have these little signs, right. That, that say what majors they're looking for, who they're hiring and who should interview with them. And there are only two companies that wanted physics or math majors. One was Anderson Consulting, um, now known as, what is it? It's the big consulting firm. Anyway, consulting firm. And frankly, they would take anybody, anybody with a pulse that was fairly intelligent, they would hire. So your major really didn't matter to them because they were just hiring you to be a consultant. Um, and then the other one was Hughes, uh, Hughes Aircraft, which was based in Denver. And so I, I uh, handed the guy my resume at Hughes and uh, he, he took a look at it and he's like, you know what we're really looking for? really looking for C++ programmers. And I'm like, I can't help you. My only programming class for my minor was Fortran. Actually, that's not true. I also took Pascal, both really important languages in the world today. And so, uh, and he's like, well, do you have any exposure to C or C++? I was like, well, in my physics lab, my TA once wrote a program for us because we were collecting (laughs) data from a mechanism. 
to, to graph the data. And he wrote like a 10 line C program. This is literally my exposure to C. I saw my TA write a 10 line program to collect data for our experiment. He's like, good enough. And he writes on my resume, C, C++ experience. And he's like, I'll pass this along. <laughs> I'm like, that's blatant lying, you know? And I was, I was feeling kind of weird about it because I'm like, I don't have that experience. But programming is programming. Honestly, switching languages is really a matter of semantics. So if you know how to program, you're probably okay. Anyway, so I go through the whole interview process and both Hughes and Anderson offered me jobs. But Anderson was uh, in St. Louis. I would be working out of the St. Louis office. And I'd grown up in St. Louis. I'd spent my whole life there, except for those two years in Washington, D.C. Lord. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, frankly, uh, Denver sounded more interesting, right? like time to get out and, and try something new. And I took the job with Hughes and went out there and it was actually called Hughes information, HITC, uh, because of what we did with orbital analysis work and writing software that goes on satellites. So um, the big contracts, basically Hughes is a defense contractor and all their satellites are $500 million, you know, pop them up in the sky and spy on people. And so, uh, so the work I was doing was related to all these satellite uh, software development efforts. But humorously enough, my first assignment was on a team that was supporting some legacy software that was written in, wait for it, Fortran. Oh. Uh, which is like this 20 year old language at the time, you know, but, uh, but anyway, so I, I'm like, Hey, I actually have Fortran experience. So I, I, uh, worked on that for a little while, um, met my wife. She was assigned to our team for a couple of days and, uh, we should tell the meeting our wives stories sometime. Sounds good. Any, anyway, so she, uh, so I was doing something and I needed to learn C and she's a computer science major. So she's like, well, here's a couple. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. You keep saying C, but you said A plus plus. What? C plus plus. Oh, C plus. I thought you said A plus plus. I never said A plus plus. All right, never mind. Okay, go ahead. I'm not that good. I have a theater uh, major. And so, uh, <laughs> oh, sorry, I'll speak slower. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so she showed me a couple tricks in C, and I always give her credit for teaching me C, but she's like, I didn't, I didn't teach you C. But anyway, um, so I, I learned some C. So I spent uh, five years at Hughes, uh, all told, and the entire time worked on internal research projects and was mm -hmm. sort of assigned out, farmed out to other teams. So for a time, I actually worked on her team, which was a big classified project, um, and uh, worked on a number of other classified projects, had a number of security clearances that all kind of bothered me. Um, there's so much red tape involved in security clearances, and, and most of the time, being privy to all that knowledge, it's not nearly as cool as they make it out to be in movies or as you might imagine it to be. It's really pretty boring, mundane stuff that's classified for some obscure reason. Um, so I have a whole bunch of stories about incidents that happened with classified data, but, um, but it was really kind of frustrating. It was frustrating to do all this work that was cool, but not be able to talk about it. And, and even to not be able to share it within the company. I developed some analysis tools that were pretty spiffy and wanted to share them with other divisions of the company. And they're like, you can't do that. Well, why not? Well, because it was developed under classified programs. And I'm like, but the code itself is not classified. Like, 
what's classified is the data that you feed into the program. Why can't I share the program with others? Because we were encouraged to do this kind of stuff, to, to do everything from give presentations and seminars, to attend symposiums, to, to file patents. And so I actually presented at a number of symposiums. I never filed a patent, um, but I wasn't really able to share the work that I did. And I felt like that was kind of annoying. But I moved up pretty quickly in the ranks. And after a couple of years, I was assigned to an engineering team uh, under the lead engineer for the entire Denver facility. So this is a guy that runs an organization of like 2,500 engineers. And I was on a team who reported directly to him with about six other senior engineers. So here's me, Mr. Speaking of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. I'm bright-eyed and bushy-tailed a couple years out of college working with people who have been you know, doing systems engineering for 20 years. Um, but it was really cool because I got exposure to, to these people who are just amazing engineers and the projects we did were really cool. And so I loved the work I did and kind of like what you said, I loved the people I worked with. They were great people. The projects were interesting. Uh, the pay was decent. I got to travel, but not too much. So I got to go all over the country. I left the country, um, on one occasion and, uh, and it was really pretty cool. I mean, coming out of school, it was a great experience, but I got really frustrated with this, all the red tape associated with classified stuff. And I got frustrated with the fact that in a company of 120,000 people, I'm never going to amount to anything. I felt like, not, not that I want to be this big shot or whatever, but I wanted to feel like the things I did mattered. And with that many people and an org chart that changes every couple of years, just like all the Dilbert comics make fun of, mm -hmm. um, I, I just True. felt like I was, I was never going to go anywhere. Yeah, you know, you work in big industry. Although I can't say the name of that company, right? I don't know. At <laughs> so, this point, I'm whatever. I'm not worried about it. I just, you know, I don't so, want uh, to be perceived as speaking for the company ever. Right, you know? right. Yeah. So Hughes got bought out by Raytheon a couple years in, into my tenure there. And Raytheon was just the same. It was more of the same, right? They bought that whole division. Um, and so... After five years there, um, I was getting a little grumpy about all of it. And I'd come home and I'd kind of complain about something that was frustrating to me or, or whatever. And, uh, and finally, Larley was like, you know what? You, you complained a lot about your job. Either you, you suck it up and you, you do what you, you know, focus on the things that are positive about it or get another job. And she didn't say it this way, but it was more like, frankly, I'm tired of hearing about it. Quit whining. Mm -hmm. And that was actually a really good thing for her to say because it really woke me up to recognizing that, yeah, I was kind of unhappy. And there wasn't a real concrete reason why I was unhappy. The company was treating me well. I was getting good raises. I was being promoted. I was on this amazing team. So I really didn't have anything to complain about. And yet I was complaining. So I knew that it was time for a change. Yeah. So that's when I kind of decided it's time to, to just try something different, to put my feet into a different pool and, and see what happened. So that's my chapter one. Okay. Well, so I was, I was the youth minister for two years, um, and a couple things happened. Primarily, I got engaged and was going to get married in May of 96. That was t literally two years in. And looking at uh, a job where I'm making $11,000 a year, and I don't know that, well, I know Jennifer wasn't super hip on being a minister's wife at the time. Um, I, we decided I should go look for a, look for a, job like a real job with prospects and um so i was interested in banking and i went out and applied to several banking or positions and i guess i had applied 
to a company called One Stop Mortgage to process mortgage loans. And I ended up getting hired there. Um, One Stop Mortgage was a subprime mortgage company. And they were a small wholesale lender, so we would go around. You hear about mortgage brokers all the time. We were the ones going out and funding the mortgage broker's loans. They didn't actually have any funding capabilities. They didn't have the, the funds to do it, so we would do that. Um, but I, I started there as a processor in May of 1996 and moved into sales about a year and a half later. And from there, um, I worked there until 2000 when I took a job with a different mortgage company. The one thing about these, these uh, small to medium mortgage lenders, especially the subprime ones, was it was a constant flux. At the time, the, the guidelines for the subprime lending had been opened up by the government. So companies were starting to feel out you know, how this would work and they weren't making the kind of loans that we were making in the 2000s. Um, we were making you know, like an 80% loan on a, on a refinance at a high interest rate to somebody that maybe paid their mortgage but didn't pay their other bills very well, stuff like that. And I moved, I was in sales and everything was going well. Then we closed down the local office. They moved the, the processing centers down to Louisiana and it did not go well at all. And I was not making any money. So I took a jump to another company and that went very poorly. And I basically went for six months with hardly making any money at all. If making, you know, I, cause I was a straight commission. Um, I'll jump on my next one. Cause I know that you're going to have less moves here in front of you. So, so I moved into uh, telecommunication sales for about two years. I did that. I sold T1s and kind of kept my foot in the mortgage field a little bit during that time. Um, after I got started there and I was there on September 11th, 2001, um, did that for a couple of years and then got right back into mortgages and, and did that all the way up to 2007 when everything imploded. But I guess I'll get to that story next. So uh, that was, but that was my introduction to mortgages. I was, I was interested in, since I was trying to find something that I'd be interested in, and I knew that I'd always been interested in kind of money and banking and numbers, but I knew almost nothing about it. And my introduction to that, to that world was through subprime mortgages uh, with a small, with a small to medium sized wholesale lender. And it was pretty topsy turvy from 1996 through 2009. I had a lot of different career moves and companies and made a lot of money sometimes and no money other times. And, uh, yeah, I'll kind of, kind of wrap that. I, well, what, what do you have? You, you've got one, one, that one place you worked in between, then you started your own business and now you're retired. Yeah, right? so you okay. Can, I'm going to take this up to 2007 then. So I did the telecommunication sales, which, which went fine for a year. And then it just, I really, I, and I love the people there. I still keep in touch with several of the people there. Don't know what their opinions of me are. Um, just because I, I was still kind of dabbling in the mortgage on the side and they knew it and I wasn't trying to hide it. Um, but I ended up going back into doing the same job in the mortgage business for the original company that I worked for because they kind of figured things out a little bit. And then along the way, I got offered a sales manager position, a producing sales manager with another company called Aegis Funding. By the way, all these companies are out of business now. These were all <laughs> medium, small, subprime Shocking. lenders. Yeah. Um, and some people may be cringing at the fact that I worked for a subprime lender at the time. It wasn't something I, you know, you, 
you look at it as you're actually making money available to people that that may not have access to those funds and that the interest rates are a little higher. I think the biggest bugaboo of the whole thing um, was the type of mortgages people were getting. It wasn't the rates. The rates were high um, based on rates at the time, which normal rates at the time were eight, nine percent. So these were like 12, 13, 14 percent rates. But they should have been fixed rates. And instead, what loan officers would do, and I was the one selling our services to the loan officers, so I never talked to any customers. Not that makes it any better. Um, but they, the loan officers would sell the customers on a two-year fixed rate. So you would have a you could get a fixed rate mortgage for 30 years. That would be, I don't know, 12%. Or you could get a two-year fixed rate at 11%. And then two years from now, we'll just refinance oh, you into no. another product. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's that's... That. And that's what the business was built on. And that was everywhere. That was not us. That was not just us. That was every subprime lender was selling people with bad credit histories. And at the time, it would generally be you have a bad credit history, except you pay your rent or your mortgage every month, and maybe you pay your car. Um, but everything else you may struggle to pay, or there may be something else going on that's got you with a, a low credit score. But those two-year fixed, two-year fixed, that's just the worst, just the worst. Um, cause you're misleading somebody that may not be as sophisticated as in understanding the lending terms, I'm not saying everybody, and I'm not trying to pigeonhole anybody, but, um, and saying, okay, two years from now, we'll come back and refinance you in a different product. Rates should be lower because rates were, were falling at the time. Whereas those people pro all should have taken fixed rate mortgages. And then, cause you can do the same thing with a fixed rate mortgage that you could with a two year, except there was a prepayment penalty on it. You had to hold it for a little bit longer, but they would have all been in much better shape when the, when the problems really came. So I got a sales management job with Aegis Funding, and there I met um, the, first, the first mentor, I guess I had. Not my first mentor, but, excuse me, one that really showed me a lot of the fundamentals about leading people. Uh, his name was Glenn. He was an ex-Army. I, I guess he, he, I mean, he was a guy that had been to Grenada and been to several different um, campaigns and, and um, really learned a lot from him about leading people and understanding where my skill sets fell in with leading people and, and understanding how to, um, how to do that. So I spent about, again, these jobs are so transient and they change so often. Um, I got that job as an opportunity, but then I was there for, about a year, maybe a year plus, and they were going to change us over into non-producing sales managers, and I was going to take about a 50% pay cut. So I just moved into a sales position and had the really great income year, like the best year of my life by a pretty wide margin, and really knew my stuff, uh, and I'd, had, I'd established all the relationships with all the people that I worked with, um, had a really good year, and then all of a sudden, Aegis changed all of their underwriting guidelines and basically was still in business, but had stopped funding subprime loans. And this was, I want to say December, December of 05. Yeah, that's what it was. December, November, December of 05. So they were ahead of the curve, <laughs> so to speak. Um, we all, and we all, I had done well enough that I was on the president's trip to Cabo and Jennifer and I went on that. Had a great like four days in Cabo. Um, really, really, you know, they did it up and and everything. But everybody on that trip, all the top producers of the company were talking about where they're going to work next because <laughs> no, because they nobody could make any money. 
Yeah. Um, so, so Aegis had the business open, but not really. They were, they were shutting it down. So I got a job with Countrywide Home Loans, who was the biggest national lender at the time. I don't know if that name rings a bell at all. I, I've heard that somewhere. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest contributors to what was about to come. So I got a job at Countrywide Home Loans doing subprime loans because that's what I knew how to do. And that's where all my contacts were. And I knew the business very, very well. And I was actually just a sales guy there. And then within six to eight months, my manager got moved into managing the prime loans uh, production. And I, I was moved into the sales manager position there, position there. And in January of 07, we were instructed to hire up. I think I had like eight reps working for me and I hired up to, this may not be right. I, well, I hired up to the biggest number of reps I'd ever had. It was too many. And we were telling them it's too many. And, and Countrywide opened their underwriting guidelines wide open. So they started, they took off a lot of underwriting requirements and started just taking in all of the subprime paper that they could, which for us was a, we felt like it was a bonanza. I'd hired all these people. Sure. Everybody's making, you know, good money and doing really well. And that's January, February. In at the end of August, they shut down subprime lending. So it was that quick. It was eight months of great, great, great. Thanks for opening these up. We're going to make a bunch of money. And then they shut it down. So really ethical business practice. <laughs> just to be clear, I had no influence on it. I, you know, just, Took it, but you know they basically took in all the paper they could because they knew that a collapse was coming. Um, I don't know if they knew it was coming to the extent that it was, but they did. They 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 did that. And in August, they shut down the subprime and offered us the opportunity to move into be a, a prime sales rep to sell the A paper stuff. But at the time, they they had hired up really big on the prime side too, so all you had left was a few small shot. You know, there was no way to make a living at it. Mm-hmm. So what I did over the next four months, I took two different jobs with two different mortgage lenders. One that the guy was gonna, had agreed to pay me a certain amount of money in my first month he paid me half of that and then he could not pay me. So I left that business. And then the second one I went and tried being a loan officer and I did not, that was not a fit. I, I don't enjoy that part of it. Um, so I got a job in outs, outside the mortgage business selling and failed miserably. Then I got another job, followed my boss, left and went back. My boss left and went back to the telecom company I'd worked for in 2001. And I followed him and worked there for six months and failed miserably. And then I tried to sell cleaning chemicals and failed miserably. I tried to go back to work for another mortgage company that shut down. And I got another job with another mortgage company in sales that shut down. At about that time, that would have been April 2009, um, somewhere around February, a friend of mine had said, hey, we're hiring over here at Bank of America for mortgage processors, which was the job. This is February, this is February 2009. That was the job I started with in 1996. And I'm looking at it and saying, man, that's, you know, first of all, I'd be making a third of what I had grown accustomed to making. And I still feel like I can make it in these sales jobs. I still felt like I was a sales guy. As it turns out, what I realized as I go along is I was never a sales guy. I was a persistent guy and I had a really good head for how, how to do the business and how to get loans done. And that eventually helped me become valuable to my 
to my clients, but I was not a sales guy. Um, so when I finally learned that I was not able to make any of these sales businesses and I was miserable and we were out of money, I drained my uh, retirement accounts because we had to have money to get by. Um, we were very lucky that Jennifer uh, started her teaching career in the fall of 2007, right when Countrywide shut down. So we had insurance this whole time, we had benefits and, and we had her, her salary coming in too. So May, April or May of 2009, I think it was April actually, I took that job processing mortgage loans at Bank of America. And it was the first desk job I had had since 1997, so in 12 years. And I took a second job delivering Papa John's pizzas. And I did that for, I did the pizzas for four and a half years. So I will let off there, but it was basically a complete reboot of my entire career. I started over from the ground floor. Um, and I'll kind of get back into that in a minute, but we'll, uh, we'll turn it back over to you. Yeah. So I lost count there. How many jobs did you, like on your resume, is that like 10 jobs? Well, my resume is, yeah, my resume does not have those jobs anymore. I basically well, go yeah. from, yeah. I basically take my resume now from being a salesman or being a sales manager at Aegis um, to being a sales manager at Countrywide to being a mortgage processor at Bank of America, where yeah, I actually, yeah. I did move into a management position there within a, within about 12 months, but um, yeah. That's crazy. That's a, yeah. a very colorful history. That's um, one way to put it. <laughs> mine is not nearly as exciting. I, uh, I was uh, at, Raytheon still thinking about how to get out of there and uh, actually spoke with a couple friends of mine at Raytheon who were very talented engineers. And I said, I'm thinking about getting out of this rat race. The big company is getting me down. I want to start my own company doing this. Would you be interested in joining me? And um, two of them, there were three of them, I guess I talked to two of them were interested. And so we had a couple lunches together and sort of talked about you know, what we might do and how we might uh, start up a, a company doing basically what we were already doing, which was engineering consulting for aerospace companies. Um, we were very good at it. This was part of that senior engineering team I was talking about. So I was the junior person by probably 15 years. Uh, so these, these senior guys, they had contacts in the, you know, in the government and in the defense industry. And I had the programming now, uh, knowledge that would allow us to write the software and do the work. So it was, it seemed like a good team, but they, uh, I think they took a look at, uh, you know, they had a pretty secure job and a good salary and they could, they could spend their career there without any, without any hiccups. And so they, they eventually said, no, we, we decided we're going to stay here. But I, by that time I had kind of caught the bug and I was like, I'm, I'm out of here. I was, I was mentally moving on at that point. So I, uh, I went and, uh, interviewed at a company in Boulder that a friend of mine who used to work at Raytheon had gone to. So he said, you know, you should come up here and, and check these guys out. They're a small startup. They're doing web development, which was, which was kind of new at the time. This is 2000. This is right when the dot-com boom was starting to happen and everyone was doing web stuff. It was the hot new thing. And, and he's like, you should check this out because it's a small company. It's just such a different environment. It's a lot of fun. So I went and interviewed there and uh, did well in the interview, had no web programming experience. They did stuff in Java. I hadn't really done much Java. I think I took a class when I was at Raytheon that was offered. And so again, I was really not qualified for the job, but programming is programming. And I was becoming a very good programmer over five years, uh, doing it professionally every day. 
in a couple of different languages, you know, I, I got pretty good. So they hired me. And this is a little company in Boulder. I was the 20th employee. Um, they had a little office and, uh, and they did consulting work for the airline industry. They, they basically digitized airline maintenance manuals and made them available a web interface. And this was like kind of new at the time. Now you can't imagine not doing that, but the manuals to run an airplane, like just for the, for the team that repairs it, take up a hanger. Like when you print them out, they're seriously that big. And mm -hmm. so moving this stuff online so that the mechanics could quickly access information they needed about the parts and whatever the procedures um, was, was really world changing for the airline industry. So there was money flowing the company was doing really well and it was a completely different environment. I loved it. We had a foosball table and a ping pong table and it was dot-com era, right? Everyone, you know, we had Nerf guns. Everyone had Nerf guns were running around shooting each other randomly during the day. And I had a chess board set up in my office. My office mate and I would play chess. We'd make a move and then work for a few minutes and make another move. And um, it was just a ton of fun. It was a fun environment. A lot of young people instead of like old senior engineers, it was a lot of 20 something programmers. Uh, and so, it was just such a, it was a night and day different. And so I learned how to do web programming, um, learned some new technologies, really enjoyed that. But within a year, it had grown from 20 people to 40 people. And the culture had changed noticeably. There were no more running around with Nerf guns. Um, we had a bunch of procedures and policies that had come down. We had an HR person now who was making sure that we were following all the procedures. Um, ping pong table seemed to go unused a lot more than it had when I first got there. And what I saw was in that year, growing from 20 to 40 people, we had become a smaller version of the big corporate company. And I don't fault them for it because I think you reach a certain point in the size of your company and you have no choice but to get an HR person. Mm -hmm. You have no choice but to have a payroll person. Um, you have no choice but to have policies and procedures because if you don't, it's just, you know, it's anarchy. And with 20 people, that anarchy was a barely controlled but controlled uh, process. And by 40 people, you just can't do it anymore. So there's all these project managers and all these layers. And I was like, it's Raytheon all over again. And I can't do that again. I, I don't want that. But I really enjoyed the small company environment. So I want to uh, start my own company. And that was when I decided, I mean, it was the dot-com era and I knew web development, right? What could go wrong? Um, because everyone was building websites and the money was, was everywhere. And so I actually started looking for some jobs. I went with a recruiter to see if I could find a job doing like contract work in web while at the same time I was looking to find my own thing without a recruiter. And uh, funny story, this is a little bit of a tangent, but the recruiter called me one day, one day and I was at work and he's like, I got an interview for you with Sun Microsystems. Um, which was, uh, Sun is huge, right? And uh, they were doing really cool stuff with Java. They invented Java. And, uh, and I was doing Java work. So I was, I was actually qualified for this job. But I said, I, I'm really not prepared for an interview right now. He's like, the interview's in an hour. You need to show up. And I'm like, I'm really not prepared. And I said that because I was wearing shorts and a Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops, uh, which is what I wore to work. That was one of the beauties of it, right? And I'm like, okay. So I drove down to Sun and I went into this interview and everyone else in the interview, everyone interviewing me, there's like five of them across the table from me, all in suits. And I'm in shorts and flip-flops. And uh, I'm like, you know, sorry about the way I'm dressed, but this is, you know, I didn't know about the interview and like, it's fine. Anyway, they, they did offer me the job. So the clothes clearly didn't dissuade them. But um, 
I was going to take the job until I found out that the recruiter, the recruiting company, they were taking like half of the pay. Like, I don't remember what son was going to pay, but the recruiting company got half of it and I got the other half. And I'm like, well, that's stupid. Um, why do I need this recruiting company at all? So I, I turned that down and I actually went and worked, consulted at a, at a different company um, for about three months. And during that time, I started my own company. I needed to have a way for them to pay me. And so I started a company and uh, it was called L5, the letter L and the number five. And I'm sure you're like, well, why was it called L5? And let me tell you. Okay. Because in astrophysics, L5 is called a Lagrange point. It's the fifth Lagrange point. And it's where gravity oh, yeah. is balanced between two celestial bodies. And I thought, that is so cool because I'm an astrophysicist. Yeah, I, um, I remember that. Right. I mean, everyone mm -hmm. learns that in grade school. My Shakespeare class. As it turns out, L5 is a terrible name for a company because when you write it down or when you have it on a business card or a website, uh, the lowercase L looks like an I or a one and the five looks like it might be an S and no one could figure out what my email address was and all this kind of stuff. So I changed the name of the company to Neobox. Neo, that was probably about when the Matrix came out. I remember Neobox. Neobox, I thought that was pretty cool and hip. Uh, and my logo was literally a hand-drawn box that I, that I sketched. So... So I'm not a marketing genius, but I'm actually a pretty good programmer. So I, I did well with Neobox. And so I, I consulted for this firm for about three months. And during that time, I was able to find some other consulting jobs. And so it was really good for me. Everyone was looking for web developers, but um, it was good for me because my timing was perfect. And so I found another client uh, in the Denver area who needed some web stuff done and one in Boulder. And I was working uh, in Boulder and uh, working with a couple other people who decided they wanted to kind of start their own thing. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, I, I think it'd be really good for me to, to join up with some other people and make my company more than just one, one person. Cause it's hard being one person. You have to do everything. Um, and one guy was a graphic designer and one guy was a project manager. And so I thought, well, the three of us together for a website, you need a graphic designer. You need someone who can build the website with the technology and then a project manager to sort of interface with the clients and make sure that, you know, the project was staying on schedule and on budget and all that kind of stuff. What a perfect match. And so, um, so we started a new company um, and we called it Aless, which was short for Coalesce. We thought it was all cool, Aless. And we rented office space, so I wasn't working in my basement anymore. Um, we rented an office, and we sat down, and we got to work. And the, the, the projects that I already had that I had been doing for myself, I brought to the company. So we sort of, you know, th that seeded us a little bit. And so I did that for a few months, but I couldn't help but notice that the graphic designer was very talented. He was a great graphic designer. He's very creative, did really good work. Um, but the project manager guy was not bringing any business. He wasn't really helping with any of the work with clients because I'm a fairly good communicator. And so it was not hard for me to talk to a client to email them or call them and talk about their project and understand what they wanted and go back and make that change for them. I didn't really need a project manager getting in the way. Plus that was kind of what had turned me off to the company I had been at um, when they started growing and they started getting yep. project management layers. And so over time, it became clear that the project manager is not really contributing to the company at all. He would go out to lunch with people and I don't know, try to, try to sweet talk him into giving us more work or whatever, but it never worked. It, like he literally was never successful once in landing any more work. It was me and the graphic designer who through people we already knew were landing new work. And so finally I talked to the graphic designer privately and I said, you know, he's not really helping 
you and I should go off and do our own thing. He's like, well, no, you know, we've been, he, he, the two of them had been friends for many years. And yeah, that's a tough conversation, time. right? So it's a tough conversation. And he, he was loyal, um, which is fine. Um, but I said, I, I, I need to go. I can't, I can't continue giving a third of my income to a guy who's not contributing to earning that income. And so I left that company and it, uh, it became ugly. It, it was really bad. Um, and I would say I lost those friends over it um, because they say don't mix business with friendship. And that I learned that lesson. Um, it was a, a very acrimonious breakup. Um, they expected me to continue uh, contributing some of the income from my projects to the company because they were under the company's umbrella. But I'm like, but those projects were mine. I did all the work. I got the contracts. Um, you can't do them without me anyway. And so it got, it got nasty and it was very sad and unfortunate. Um, I, I can add as a side note, me and the graphic designer, I, I ran across him years later and uh, he told me at that time, he had uh, kind of broken up with the other guy about a year later. I didn't know that. I didn't, you know, we, we literally were not friends anymore. So I didn't follow what they were doing, but he said, I kind of realized what you did just took me a little bit longer. Yeah. And so it was the smartest thing I ever did. And so he started a different company, the graphic designer, which is now a very successful company. It's doing really well. And, uh, and I don't hold any ill will toward him. Um, but the other guy just kind of dragged it down and then got really nasty about it. And it was a really unfortunate situation. So, um, so that was sad, but that's when I started Zing studios, which was the company that carried me for the next 18 years. Um, and I started it, believe it or not, with a friend. <laughs> didn't learn um, that lesson too well then. Didn't learn a lesson too well. I also had another side business uh, called Redwire Networks that I started with a friend. Um, but we only did a couple of little projects. Um, they were very minor and, and nothing ever went badly there. It was just sort of side income for both of us. And I started another company called BitRelay, which is a web hosting company with two friends. Um, but I promptly bought bought their stock and uh, basically took over the company myself. They, they were not uh, able to do any of the technical work. It was all me. And so they really had nothing to offer and recognize that. And they're like, well, we'll sell you our shares back. So, so with Zing, I started this company and uh, it was me and my friend and she was in San Francisco and I was in Colorado and she would go out and get contracts and I would work on the contracts. So she was going out and getting business. Um, but over time she decided she wanted to kind of do her own thing. And she, I would describe her as a free spirit. Um, having a nine to five job was just not her style. And she recognized that. And to her credit, she said, I think this should just, this company should be yours. And I'm going to go and kind of do my own thing and figure out what I want to do with my life. And so I bought back her shares and Zing became my company solely. And so I did that. I was probably working by myself for another year before there got to be too much work. And so I hired a contractor to come and help me out. But that was difficult because you can't really tell a contractor what to do. You, you say, here's a job that needs to get done, but they kind of do it on their own time and interspersed with other projects they have for other clients. And so it became clear I needed to hire someone. So I, I hired someone and then I hired someone again. And over time, kind of built up the team as I needed more people as we got busy. So um, over the course of 18 years, uh, Zing has continued to flourish, not flourish. It hasn't, I have intentionally kept the company small. I could have grown it bigger. I could have hired marketing people and salespeople and graphic designers, but instead I chose to keep it as a company of just a bunch of geeks, a whole bunch of web developers working together, very much self-directed. 
Um, right now it's a six person company plus me and it's never been bigger than 10. 10 was the biggest we ever got. And that was very intentional. And I thought, you know, I could have been really successful. I think if I had hired people that knew what they were doing with, with marketing and sales and stuff like that, but uh, I didn't want to become those companies that I left for exactly that reason. So I feel like I maybe hobbled myself a little bit, but it was an intentional decision and one that I think was still the right thing to do. So uh, it's been, it's been a crazy ride and not what I expected at all coming out of college, but uh, that's sort of my career. And then last year I was uh, very blessed and fortunate and able to, uh, to basically step back from the business to train up one of the senior guys um, over the course of about six months, he took over more and more responsibility until the day came when I said, company is yours, you're running it now. So he, uh, he has managed it for the last, uh, I guess about nine months now. And, uh, and I really do very little. I consult with him now and again, we have check-in meetings and stuff. I own the company, but uh, I don't really work there. And that's been, uh, that's been amazing to me. I didn't think that would actually happen, but it's worked out really well. The end. That's the well, end of my career. <laughs> I think we should point out that when I was really struggling in 2008, nine, you actually gave me a shot to do some telemarketing for you. Yes. I hired you. Yeah. For like and, a, maybe a two month period, I think. Uh huh. And I, I think I got one solid lead for you. I have no idea what happened with it. You did. No, you, it was a, at a restaurant in town. I, I remember very well. And uh, it was one that I liked uh, a lot. Uh, I frequented the place and you got me connected to the guy who was looking for a website. So I went in, I met with him and, uh, and it was great. And he couldn't afford me. So <laughs> I think he was looking for a $500 website and yeah. I'm like, it's going to cost you 5,000 for what you want. Um, and, and I wasn't being unreasonable. I was, you know, trying to work with them, but it just, yeah. it just didn't work out. But yeah, I mean, I think you have strengths in that area and I just don't. So it was, it was good to have you help me out there. And I was happy to help you because I know, you know, things were, things were tough over there as well. Yeah. I think you were more help to me than I was to you. And, and that was kind of part of my journey of realizing that I really was not a sales guy. So, <laughs> so what sticks out to me so far, like, so you knew very early on, um, you had that entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spirit, like from the very beginning, like yeah. you're looking around, you saying, I, you know, I like the job. I like the work. I hate the way it's being done. Um, or hate the execution of it just based on the size. And you could then even going to another company, you saw the same thing when it got above 10 people. So you had a really good idea from a very early time, what you wanted to do, how you wanted to execute it, what turned you on, what turned you off. And I don't think I figured that stuff out until the, within the last five to six years. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I um, yeah. I mean, I'm in my forties, I don't think I figured it out until I was in my forties what really turned me on. And, and I'll, so let's, let's get into that then. So I started my career over at Bank of America in 2009 processing within 12 to 14 months. I, I was managing a team. Um, maybe it was longer than that. It might've been more like a year and a half, two years, but I, I, I was able to manage a team full of processors and junior underwriters. Um, and but still, even with doing that, still with little understanding of, of what made me tick for that and why I was good at it. Because I was really good at processing. Like I walked in, hit the ground running, did a lot of great things, made some, a couple big mistakes. Um, I, there's a story there. But maybe, okay, so let me tell this story. 
So I was, I was processing a mortgage loan. And what a processor is, is the person that you talk to and you give all your documents to, and they organize your file and they might be able to sign off on some documents, but they forward the rest of the underwriter to give the approval for your loan, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I had this loan in, I, I want to say West Virginia. And the, the borrower's name was like Kelly or something, a, a name that can be for man, or woman, whatever, it doesn't matter. Like Kelly Star. I don't even think that's not the name, but it was something like that. And this woman had been calling me and, and you always, you always had a, when someone calls you or you're talking to somebody about a mortgage or anything with a bank at all, you always verify their identity, right? Last four of your social and your date of birth. And she give, was giving that. And this house, when I got the appraisal for the house was just this dilapidated shack in the middle of the woods. Like the roof had holes in it and there was a bunch of other repairs and all this stuff. And she was having trouble getting me all the documentation for her job. And it was just really messy and, and, and she was not comprehending. Like I'd tell her, hey, I need a pay stub that I can read. And it says there's two pages and you only give me one page of it. I need both pages, stuff like that. Yeah. And she just couldn't comprehend it. She kept sending me the same thing over and over again. Like, is that fine? I'm like, no, it's not fine. And then like when I got the appraisal, I said, hey, look, she's like, I'm gonna go have the work done in the house. I'm like, no, don't, don't pay for the work on the house. I don't, your loan is not approved yet. You know, let let's get everything else done. All the other stuff that she really couldn't figure out. And then let's get your, then you can go have the work done in the house, you know, um, and you shouldn't be paying for it anyway. The seller should be paying for it. Right. So anyway, I told her that. And like a week later, she comes back, all the work's done, send the appraiser back out. I'm like, are you gotta be kidding me? So she's not listening to a word I'm saying. And then it just went over and over again. I remember telling my boss about the loan and I'm like, Hey, I'm not sure about this loan. And then, and I can't get all the documents and they're like, well, whatever. And then it, one day I find out that this person is not Kelly Starr or whatever. Kelly Starr is working in a factory all day and he's got a nine to five. So his girlfriend's handling all this for him. So she's been lying to me, which I also bring up to my boss. And they're like, well, just whatever, you know, it, it was kind of dismissed offhand, which kind of bothered me. And I was, just, I was trying to, first of all, get out from under having to do this thing because it was just taking up a bunch of time. So with the way it all got kind of handed down, and I take most of personal responsibility, I eventually ended up just approving the loan with those, with the documents as I was getting them because she just could not figure it out and nobody would listen to me when I was raising red flags. Well, of course, this is one of the loans that gets called up for a review. Like, you know, one out of every 10 loans gets reviewed post-closing, and this is the one. <laughs> so I get called on it. I get called into a room. So at the time they were having... At the end of the day, if you made an error, you get called into a room with everybody else. You have to tell us what the error was and why you won't make it again, which is just childish and stupid, but that's what was happening. Okay. So I'm in the room with like my boss's boss and like the underwriting director of the site, like, you know, two of the top three people on the site. And I didn't really know anybody. They knew that I was doing pretty well closing loans, but they didn't really know me. (laughs) They said, so they go... Like and the guy that sat next to me was in there too because he had made an error too, you know. So they're like, "So what happened here, Dirk? Why'd you do it?" And I said, "Well, you know, I I tried and we went back and forth and you know I kept trying to explain what was going on, but we had a real communication gap between us." And they go, oh, "Was it somebody spoke a different language?" I said, "It's like, nope, they're from West Virginia." And I'm like, I'm like making <laughs> jokes, <laughs> and I look at the guy next to me, his name's Dan, and he's going. <laughs> he's like <laughs> and I look back and they're there they're like looking through me <laughs> like, like okay so they go so you just uh 
you just threw this up against a wall to hope it stick. You know, you just kind of just close this on and threw it in there. Is that how you do it? And I said, well, you know, as Obi-Wan Kenobi said, you did not. Yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I said, as Obi-Wan Kenobi said, from a certain point of view, you know, I probably made the right move for the customer. <laughs> Something like that. I did say the whole Obi-Wan Kenobi from a certain point of view. And I look at Dan again. He's going, geez, like, got this look on his face like, it was nice knowing you. Yeah. This is a career pivoting moment. Oh, my gosh. They were, I think they were close to strangling me from across the room. So my boss calls me the next morning. She's like, what? Cause she was awesome. She's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I panicked. I just, you know, I, this is, this is all part of me not understanding my, who I am and what makes me tick. I, I think it all goes together. I just, I just functioned as the clown, you know? Mm-hmm. So if, if the clown couldn't get me through a hard situation, I didn't know how to deal with it. <laughs> So anyway, learned a lot from doing that. I ended up managing a team. I was managing a purchase team and I was delivering pizzas the whole time. Um, I guess I was there three, three years or so, three plus years, maybe three and a half. Well, about that time, some people that were working for me uh, went to city. So they went to, yeah, I know. So they moved over to Citibank to process home equity or no, to underwrite home equity lines. And, I'm, and they're like, man, you should come with us. I'm like, no, nah, I'm fine. I'm, I, I really enjoy managing and I enjoy the job. And, and okay. And, and like when the third one went, I'm like, man, what is going on? Why are y'all guys going? He goes, well, here's how much we're making. And I'm like, well, that's more than I'm making <laughs> to do this job. And at the time, money was the most important factor because I was delivering pizzas, you know, and I still was at that job at Bank of America. I was probably making 40% of what I had grown accustomed to making over the previous, you know, my previous career. So I went to city as a home equity underwriter and did that for four years. And um, while I was doing that, I was enjoying the company. I enjoyed the freedom. I, it was, there was none of that micromanagement was at city, none of it. And that's a really a big Testament to city. Uh, when I say micromanagement, I talk about pulling people into meetings and making you explain why you made an error and why you won't make it again. Like you're five years old um, in front of other people, you know, none of that existed. It just wasn't there. It was really a, a a culture of adults dealing with adults and holding each other accountable like adults do. And I fit really well into that culture because I, I knew how to, I never underwritten before, but I knew how to do it. And I knew mortgages backwards and forwards. And I slid right into that job and really kind of crushed it um, for the four years I did it. And about three years in my manager moved on and they were hiring a manager. And I thought, you know, I used to do that, and, my, and I had been managing and coaching the boys' baseball teams. Two of my boys played baseball. And, of course, I had spent the previous 15 years taking someone to baseball or someone to gymnastics. My oldest son was a, is a gymnast and coaches gymnastics now, or someone to piano lessons or voice lessons. You know, that was our life for 15 years, right? And that had just let up. The boys had stopped playing baseball, so I wasn't coaching anymore, and I, I had, you know, I kind of started started to get that bug of managing because I, I I enjoy managing. I enjoy leading people. And I hadn't even been thinking about it. I'd just been thinking about surviving for the past seven or eight years, I guess. So I applied for that job and I didn't get it because they, you know, I, I it wasn't something I had ever targeted before. So they had, didn't even have me in mind when I 
applied for it, but got an interview again. And then I got an interview for a management job in um, anti-money laundering was a thing that the government kind of called all the big banks on a, about five years ago. And they said we were not doing our, our uh, the proper, uh, we did not have the proper scope for monitoring for money laundering or, or drugs or terrorists really to watch and keep an eye on that kind of money coming into the country. And so we were forming this big unit and I, got, and I interviewed for a, a manager position in that unit. And this was my watershed moment. This is, this is where um, I started to see who I really should, should what I really uh, was motivated by, I guess that's a better way to put it. So I'm in that interview and I'm, I'm interviewing with the director and it's going fine, giving, you know, you always go to interview, you tell your stories. Here's my stories, here's my stories. And then she says, where do you see yourself in five years? And, I, and I'm like, I, you get that panic interview feeling like, I don't have an answer for this. I don't know. Because the answer for me has always been uh, moving forward and making more money, you know? Well, I'm moving up. I want to move up, move, make forward, make more. Cause it's just, it's like, it was a natural thing. It's like, there was, you know, I never really had any direction about it, but it was like, this is what you do. You get a job, you do really well, you move forward, get a job, do really well, move forward, make more money. But I didn't answer that. I looked her in the eye and I said, well, maybe I think in five years I could be in your job. You, oh my. <laughs> Not like taking her job, but doing what she does. And she laughed. She's like, why would you want to do that? And I, and I, and I, that was quite, that was really the question I had no answer for. I, I had no idea why. Cause the only answer to that was cause I want to make more money. That was the only answer. Cause it had been such a focus of my life. And by then I, I had not been delivering pizzas for two or three years. So, I mean, I'd gotten out of that part of my life, but still, I was still not making the amount of money I'd been used to making previously. So I made, a, I, I made up some cockamamie answer, you know. Oh, for the experience, blah, blah, blah. I, I had no idea what I was saying. And clearly she, it stuck out because I did not get that job. But I remember taking that question away and sitting down and saying, you know, that's a really good question. Where do I want to be? What, what do I want to be doing in five years? And I didn't know. So that was the time that I went back to school and I, I started to take, I took macro microeconomics at the community college and immediately fell in love with it. It became like of the Bible to me. It was like, economics is everything. Economics is how I make my sandwich in the morning. Economics is how I, how I go about putting my days together. Because it really is. It's about taking your resource. Like if you're going to make a sandwich, you go to the pantry. Do you get just the bread or do you grab the bread and the peanut butter all at the same time? Put it on the counter. Do you bring it over? Do you get the jelly? How do you... And the way you put those things together is all economics. It's all managing your resources and time to produce the, the maximum result, right? This is, and that's how I started to really see things, just in those two courses. So I did end up getting a job managing a team in, in, within uh, Collateral Risk, which was looking at uh, mortgage appraisals. And I was managing a, a processing team in there, which was something I was comfortable doing, but I was also gaining a lot of risk experience at the time and kind of getting back into management at City. And I started taking undergraduate business courses online with Southeast Missouri State, because that was the most affordable alternative. Even though City reimbursed, it wasn't enough to really go to a, I mean, there were class courses you could take at schools that you'd be paying eight to $10,000 a semester, and I couldn't swing that. So I think I was paying like 250 bucks a credit hour at Southeast and got reimbursed for most of that. 
And so over two years, I took about 30 hours of undergraduate business courses with the goal of moving on to the master's program to get my MBA. And when I moved into the MBA program, I ended up doing it online with WGU because it turned out just to be a better opportunity to uh, take competency-based courses. I recommend it to anybody if it falls in your line of work and doing those courses online. And I, I learned a ton about myself and about business. And we were talking with Derek again, why is everything always about Derek? But you know, cause you asked, cause your question always speak when I started doing that was like, what do you get out of that? You know, do you get a raise when you finish your degree? The answer is no. Do you get a promotion? No. You know, so I wasn't really sure exactly what I was going to get out of it. Whereas my wife as a teacher, when she got her master's, she did get a raise. And when she got another 30 hours education, she did get a raise. Um, so she's a significantly underpaid master's plus 30 hours of college work person, but um, not significantly, but she's under, you know, you know, the teacher thing. Yeah. Um, so I finished it and I learned so much about how to look at business, how to look at how I construct the business around me, how I lead people, who I am as a leader, how I conduct myself, what, you know, I, I just grew out of that. And, and I would not have been ready for that at any other time. And it all started getting asked, where do you see yourself in five years? That's cool. Yeah. So the answer to that question, by the way, is, and I hope will continue to be until I, maybe I learn something different. Who Making knows? more money. <laughs> yes, that's it. Um, is that I hope in five years I'll be in a position that uh, fits my skill sets at that time and, and challenges me to, to achieve things that, that maybe I haven't achieved before. And I, so I think that gives you a natural progression that, um, so you, you can target positions. Like I, I do see myself in a five-year period, hopefully leading a larger organization of people, um, maybe up to 50 to 100 people being in charge of an organization like that. But if I'm not ready for that in five years, or maybe my goals change, if I mean, right now, a lot of things in my life are, I, I can feel my priorities flipping and, and altering just by being locked up here in quarantine for three weeks and not seeing my family and, and the prospects of maybe having to self quarantine for an extended period of time. Um, I can feel my priorities actually changing while that's happening. But then, you know, once everything's back to normal, I might jump right back into that, you know, I don't know. Things are constantly in flux, but I hope that at, at all points in my life going forward, professionally, personally, every, everything that, that I'm at a point where I'm being challenged. I have things to keep me actively challenged, both personally and professionally, and that I'm, that I'm good and, and I'm fit for what I'm doing. And I hope that I'm benefiting the company I'm working for at the time. And those are, those are the real answers to that question. That's a much better um, answer. I hope I was, uh, I should write that down. I'll watch it later and write it down in case someone asks. I always, I got to tell you, I think what do you see yourself doing in five years is, a, is an inane question to ask someone. Five years is a long time and a lot changes in five years. I can see, I think a re more realistic question is where do you see yourself in one year, maybe two years. That's a little more manageable, visible. Five years, like Kyra is doing a college assignment for a class where she had to say what she's, where she sees herself in five years, 10 years and 15 years. And I'm like, She's 21 years old. 15 years from now is most of her life away, you know? And, and uh, I can't imagine how you even answer that. I don't know what she put. She probably made up something amazing. But uh, I think that's a hard question to answer. Um, even, I mean, you had a good, good answer and you're on a trajectory, you know, to get you there. But um, 
but I don't know where I'm going to be in five years. I have no idea. I really don't. Will I even be in Montana anymore? Will I, you know, be living near my kids? Will I, will I have gone back to work because I, I sort of missed the challenge and the excitement of it? I don't know. So I know exactly what you're saying. Cause that's, I, I used to say the exact same thing. Like, cause, cause if you're looking at the question on the surface, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Where do you see yourself in five years? Well, my goodness, look at my career. Yeah. I don't, I, I have not gone through a five-year period. Yeah. I've not gone through a five-year period where I've had the same job. I've been, at, I've been at city for eight years. That's the longest I've been anywhere by a pretty wide margin. Um, but I think that the question, and especially if you're interviewing a leader, you know, if you're interviewing somebody that you, you want and expect to lead people, I think it can show their, um, their depth of character and maybe, maybe how they think about themselves. And I think that's what it revealed to her when she asked it to me and why I wasn't ready for that job. It kind of revealed that I wasn't sure of my direction. I just was kind of pressing forward. And I think she was looking for people that had an idea of, a better idea of who they were and what motivated them. And I didn't, I didn't have that in my grasp at the time. It was just move forward and make more money. And that was my, my only goal. And so part of that, I could touch my face, right? But I'm only around my mother. So she's not going out either. So um, I thought back on, on that whole career path. So now I lead a team that manages the, the currency at city. We run, we, we forecast and, and do all the accounting for all of the currency cash that moves in and out of all our branches and ATMs in the country. So we've had a really challenging few weeks with people withdrawing. Uh, there's not a run on the banks, but certainly people have taken much more cash out of the bank in the last few weeks than they ever had before. Just have some cash on hand. And my team has been phenomenal. They just uh, unbelievable, unbelievable efforts, the overtime and the fact that they have missed nothing. Nothing has been just unbelievable to see that um, and to recognize I had, a, I had a small part in it because I inherited most of them, but just, just incredible. Must, must have a good boss. That's probably what it is. I think they had a good boss before me who got, taught them how to do it. And I, I maybe got them a little more prepared, but you know, that's all you do is you try to get them prepared to work, to be there without you, like, mm-hmm. which is kind of where they've been. I mean, I'm not there doing anything and I, I don't have any expertise. You drop, I know everything about mortgage. I don't know. I'm still learning about currency. I've been there two years. So. But I thought back on it, and I, and I really think when I look back, my senior year of college, when I started up that drama group, and we started with four people, and we expanded to like 15 to 20 people, and we were cycling in sketches every two weeks, right? So we, we, were, we were planning things out for two months, and we were right, we wrote everything, and we had musical numbers, we had sketches, everything. So we, we were writing and sketching, especially the four of us the first semester, just total creativity. And I love the creativity, but I think I know that the part that really, really chugged my engine, and I didn't realize, this is crazy, I didn't realize this until I was like 44 years old. So, you know, 22 years later, the thing that really got me going was planning and organizing and leading the pro- all the thing from beginning. So there was always, there were always balances. You're writing this sketch for April 5th. You're writing this sketch for April 20th. We need to review it by March 15th. We need to rewrite it by March 20th. We need to rehearse it here. 
and while we're doing that, we're planning for the next one and the next one. You know, it's, it was like a constant project flow, constant, working with really talented people and then bringing in more people that, that maybe weren't quite at the, sorry, buddy, but weren't quite at the talent level that we were at and not quite at the engagement level, but bringing them into the mix and finding great roles for them and putting them in the right spot to succeed. And when I look back on that senior year, if I had realized that at the time, I think I could have taken that and had applied it and, and maybe had a career path that would have taken me directly. Like you had a really good idea up front what you want to do. And when you saw the corporate atmosphere, you realized this is not it. And I was unable to see what was what, it, what was what got me going and what didn't until I was, again, 43, 44 years old. So thank God for my wife sticking around during that time period. Um, because man, I was a mess, just never with, with no real career direction, except make money. Uh, that's not a great way to do it. And I, I and I honestly think back and I, I did, I was, a, uh, I stage managed a couple times in college for the productions we had, uh, for Shivery and Glass Menagerie. And I really believe that if I had, if I had been a, more self-aware at the time of, of the things that got me going and the things that motivated me, I probably would have made a really solid square attempt at, at being a professional stage manager where you, you know, you're, you're take, you're, you're basically enabling the director to direct the play while you take care of everything else on the side. You know, you're getting the props, you're getting the costumes, you're um, setting up dates, you're running rehearsal schedules and everything else while the director is, is directing and, and, and running things. And if I really look back on, I think those are the kind of things that get me going. Um, just took me forever to realize it, but I, I really that said, right what, now. what 22 year old really has a solid grasp on where they're going to be in their career and in their life. Like it's rare. So, I mean, don't beat yourself up so badly. I think we should wrap up cause it's been, a yeah, while. we can wrap up. Um, and I'll, I'll beat myself think, up, but yeah. Yeah. I think for me, there are two motivating things. One is, as you pointed out, I think I decided pretty early on that I wanted to be able to control the environment I worked in. If I have to go to work every day, I want to go to a place where I enjoy working. And that's what I was able to accomplish by starting my own company. And all the people that have worked there, even the ones who have left, they left because there's no upward mobility at my company. You, you build websites. You don't get to be a boss. You don't get to be a VP. Yeah. You, you build websites all day long. And, but the people say, I love the environment. I love the, the fact that we don't have to wear shoes or the fact that we can play ping pong if we want or the fact that you trust us to work at home uh, when, we, when we want to and need to. And so I built a company where I wanted to work. And, and that was really instrumental to me. And the second thing was when I was 27 years old, I decided I wanted to retire when I was 40. I, I, I didn't want to spend my whole life working. And I said, 40 seems like a good round number. And that's my goal. And at 27, 40 is a long time away. And it seemed like a certainly an attainable goal. And it wasn't. Um, I didn't plan appropriately for it. But those were the two driving factors, I think, that put me uh, into the place I ended up being was having that control and working toward a day when I didn't have to work. And I was very fortunate, um, that it did work out, but, yeah. uh, it took a little longer than I thought. So anyway, that was fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Really. I mean, yeah, good to catch up on that. I, I think we're leading up slowly to our, uh, our two part minimum spiritual discussion. Oh, we, yeah, we got to tell some, we got to save time to tell funny stories from our, our childhood. Yeah, so. maybe, maybe we'll go back to that next, get, get a right. little lighter again. All right. Well, good evening, uh, Cosmo. Good evening.
Nooch. Talk to you soon.